I've been to my Florida facility once in the last two years, and this is a facility that went from 500,000 to 1.5 million over that time frame. Nice. I've had three boots on the ground, and the first two were both great. They just moved away each time, and so then I had to bring somebody else in. But it's it's far easier to find that person than you would guess. What's going on, guys? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show. Thank you for tuning in. Today, our guest is Mike Wagner from The Storage Rebellion. Today, we're talking about financial freedom through self-storage. We talk about Mike's story of going from being a busy professional who spent all, all this money on a formal education to now, uh, more than a decade later, being a major thought leader in the self-storage space, helping people get into self-storage, investing, build financial freedom, and their version of success through self-storage investing. We talk about the model of self-storage investment, why it can be so profitable. And, you know, I ask him a couple of tough questions here that have just been kind of burning in my mind about, you know, smaller operators going and buying self-storage properties and maybe things that could go wrong or management problems that I perceive for this strategy. And we talk about his way, his, his company's way of dealing with it, how he teaches his students to deal with that particular problem. I like to ask some tough questions while I have these guys on the show. And I hope, uh, I hope you guys enjoy that because I'm here to learn too. I'm here to learn right alongside you. And I certainly did today. You're going to learn something. You're going to learn a few things about self-storage investing today with Mike Wagner from The Storage Rebellion. I'm a big fan of self-storage. I think it's a great asset class. I have some self-storage investment right now. And you know, I think there's a lot of opportunity there that just goes overlooked. We maybe don't appreciate how much money can be made on uh, self-storage. And today, that's what we're going to get into. For those of you who are new to the show, I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor. I'm a real estate syndicator. I buy real estate with passive investors and split the return. I love learning new things. I love focusing on these great asset classes that, you know, kind of just people out there don't know about, right? When they tell you about max out your 401k, all that great stuff, saving the taxes, buy an index fund. Hey, that's all great. But there are other opportunities too, like self-storage investing. And you have to know what to look for, have to know potential problems and know the guys to learn from. And Mike is one of those guys. So without any further ado, here we go with Mike Wagner from the Storage Rebellion. Mike, thank you for joining us today. Hey, happy to be here, man. It's been great talking with you here before we hit record and we're going to have a great we're going to have a great conversation today. Uh, if you would tell our listeners, please, a little bit about you know yourself and your history and how you got to being such a, a self-storage rebel today. Well, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm happy to give you the, the quick version of my backstory. Nobody needs to hear the whole thing, but uh, I started out as a physical therapist. So I went to school and got three degrees and it, it was a very expensive party. Those six years in college, I spent a quarter million bucks got my three degrees and then started life as a physical therapist. And it was a good gig. I actually really enjoyed the act of doing therapy. It was clearly a a, a rewarding job to help people recover from illness and disease and that sort of thing. But very quickly, like within six months, realized that uh, I had kind of bought into this lie where go to school, get good grades, get a good job. And that's the key to happiness. 
the missing link for me, I didn't know it at the time, but what I ultimately realized was somebody else, i.e. my bosses had a lot more control over how I spent each day than I did, right? Even, even when I was escaping them through vacation, they determined when I came home, right? And so all of it actually came to a head while I was on vacation with my wife down in Costa Rica. And long story short, I just had this epiphany where I decided enough's enough, I'm done. And at that point, I had already made my segue into real estate investing. Um, I was a you know small multifamily guy, duplexes, four families, got a six family, nothing, nothing large, but you know, one one or two of those at a time over three or four years as a way to try to escape my day job. Um, and it went pretty well. I got up to the point where I had 31 apartments over, I guess call it three-ish years. And we were making money and we were cash flowing a little bit, but I just, I wasn't getting where I wanted to go fast enough. And, you know, I had the, the same goal that a lot of people start with was a hundred doors at 150 bucks a month, you know, do the math and I'd be home free. And I'm, I'm guessing some of your listeners can probably uh, relate to the idea that sometimes things in the real world don't pan out exactly how you pencil them in paper, right? So I redid the math three years in and said, man, I just can't do this anymore. I got to find something to get me where I want to go faster. And ultimately that's when I stumbled upon storage. Nice. That's awesome. I, as self-storage as an investment and a, and a business model, uh, I'm a big fan. Now, how long after you made the decision to pivot into self-storage, uh, did you, you know, get out of the physical therapy gig? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And the answer is negative one day. And what I mean by that, and I want to, I want to, uh, start by putting this disclaimer out there that this is not necessarily what I recommend for uh, my students when I coach them through the process. But uh, I quit my job the day before I closed on my first facility. Um, it was a decent paying job. You know, I'm, I'm in a small market. So the money I was paid was certainly enough for my wife and I to live comfortably. The sad part was I was at the ceiling of my earning potential at the age of 29, which was was pretty nauseating, right? And and the facility I bought was losing $2,000 a month the day I took over. So if you do the math, I'm a genius and I left a decent paying <laughs> job to go broke. Um, it, was, it was quite literally a six-figure pay cut overnight. So um, uh, why did you buy a facility that was losing money? Yeah, no, it's an excellent question. And and two ways to answer it. The first is uh, people would say, dude, why, why wouldn't you do it part-time? Why wouldn't you like, you know, figure it out and quit your job later? And I just, I had gotten to the point where I knew the greater risk was spending eight hours every day going through the motions, doing something that wasn't fulfilling and and felt like a, a dead end to me. And that was riskier in my brain, whether right or wrong. In hindsight, it worked out well. So I'm going to claim that, that I was right. I'm not saying it was the smartest way to go, but it worked. Um, that was riskier than whatever financial consequences might come to be with this, what looked like a risk. But the truth is, I knew that I could turn this facility around. Um, it was less than 50% full. I had identified why it was underperforming to that extent. I had met with the owner several times. There were clear signs to me that she was neglecting the place, which came to fruition. When I took over, the, the biggest complaint I got was, I could never find the lady to pay her. I'm like, well, that's a problem I'm happy to solve for you, yeah. Mr. Customer. We can fix that. Um, nice. And so I, I didn't really know how I was going to fix the problem, but 
I don't know. It, it, it was, uh, it, maybe it was intuition, a sixth sense, whatever it was. I just knew that I had studied storage for a while. It wasn't like, it wasn't like I made the decision that day, right? This was a, there was a significant due diligence process into executing the plan the way that I did. Um, and for me at the time, cutting the cord, burning the bridges, if you're burning the boats, if you will, and diving into storage was uh, a motivating force that I felt would benefit me in the long run. Nice. Well, it's obviously worked out and now you uh, train people to get into self-storage today. We're fast forwarding, I guess, nearly a decade here. But (laughs) uh, so in helping people get into storage, I want to talk about, you know, what you, what you do for them, how, like how you guide them, how people are, finding deals today, you know, we're, it's, it's been quite a while. We're in a different market today. Uh, you know, things change, right. And comparing, say there are a lot of multifamily investors today, people want to buy a house or, or, you know, apartment complex that people live in. Well, why would self-storage be an attractive investment? You got to figure, you know, when people have tough times, they throw all their crap out, right? They don't go rent out a, a storage unit for 80 bucks a month or do they, do or, they hang on to their they crap? Is the question. <laughs> yeah, no. And that's the million dollar question. And it, it defies logic. I'm not going to pretend to understand it. I just, you know, I'm big at looking at rather than my perceptions of how things should be, how are they in actuality when, right. And so what we look at in the storage world is, uh, generally speaking, when the economy is good, this one uh, aligns with common sense. We all know when the economy is good, Americans buy crap and then they need a place to put it and they have enough money to rent a unit. So they do it right. That makes perfect sense. The um, And that's a strong driver of storage. The one really strong underlying fundamental driver of demand that storage also has going with it is that transition, just like any other real estate for folks that are looking to you know, buy single family houses and flip them, right? They, they find a deal when they find an owner who is in transition. Well, those transitions happen with greater frequency and they're more dramatic when the economy is, is in a correction or a down cycle, right? So sadly, you know, financial hardship leads to things like you know, divorce and separation or downsizing evictions, foreclosures, and all of those things also drive demand for storage units. So while, while the rational brain in all of our heads would say, hey, if, you've, if you're getting foreclosed on, you've, you're losing your house, you're going into a two-bedroom apartment, cut all your expenses. The emotional part of our brain takes over and says, I'll downsize because I have to and, and there's no alternative. But Tommy's bowl, first set of golden bowling shoes and his trophies are not getting thrown away and we don't have room in our two bedroom apartment for them. So we're going to get an $80 a month storage unit. And they do. So, um, you know, and that's just one example, but I think it illustrates uh, the, and I'm not going to ever say that storage is, you know, recession proof because it's not. Every asset class is going to feel it to some degree. I think storage just has an extra layer of cushion that all other asset classes especially habitational real estate don't have. Yeah, no, I think it's a good point. And there's been a lot of folks uh, in 
not just self-storage, but other asset classes kind of bandying about this idea of any asset class being recession proof, which is just ridiculous. Nothing is recession proof. You know, don't let's not get ahead of ourselves here. But there are aspects that can make something, say, more recession resistant than uh, something else. And particularly, you know, now where we stand with all these uh, eviction moratoriums for rental real estate and all of that, you don't have that that regulation in place for self-storage. As far as I know, nothing has changed from a you know lean law and your ability to say cut the lock and put your own lock on there uh, during this recession, right? There's been no shift like that. No, that's exactly right. And and amazingly, the shift has actually, and I don't, this is not tied to current circumstances, COVID, that sort of thing. It's just tied to, I think, organic evolution of the industry. Um, but things are going the opposite direction where the government, this is probably the only asset class where this is true. The government is actually making it easier for us to do what we do for a living. Um, a- an example would be many of the lean laws are, I would argue, 20 years too late, but better late than never, finally embracing uh, technology. And um, they are looking at email as official notification for the auction process. Whereas and some states still have this requirement, but in the past, all states more or less required you to spend a, send a $7 letter through certified mail to formally notify someone of the lien that you're going to enforce through auction. Well, now email is sufficient, which is insane to me. I mean, it's incredibly, it's good. Unfortunately, in the states that I own in right now, we haven't gone that far, but several <sighs> of my students own in states where they have. Um, and it, it makes things a lot easier for sure. Nice. Now, one of the things that I've wondered, I, I don't want to seem like I'm jumping around here, but I want to make sure while we have you, I get some of the questions in that I've been you know, kind of burning sure to thing. ask. So uh, we see a lot of folks getting into self-storage, buying what would be considered mom and pops, you know, fairly small self-storages. And you mentioned the one that you bought where the, the, I don't know if it's tenants or whatever, the, the, the renters can't find the lady to give her, her the money. Right. And follow me here. How does your buying that facility not turn into you having a management headache? Like how do you, Mm -hmm. especially for a smaller facility where there aren't as many economies of scale, how do you outsource many of those tasks? Like, I don't know, cutting the grass or cleaning the stuff up or whatever, you know, how, how is that handled on the smaller scale? That's an excellent question. I want to make two points. The first is economies of scale are still a consideration. There are properties that I would deem too small to fit my investment model. That doesn't mean they're too small for you, or you may have a higher threshold, just depending on your resources, time, money, your desire, what role you want to play um, in the investment, right? So we're all what's a great investment for me may or may not be for you and vice versa. So it's very individualized, um, which I think is important. But assuming I find a property that's that achieves my economies of scale, and that first one, for example, uh, was only 10,000 square feet when we bought it. Over time, we expanded it to 30,000. Um, but what I use to ensure that I'm building a business rather than a job uh, is a three-pronged remote management strategy. And so essentially what it is in a nutshell is an online web portal where if you show up at my property in the parking lot, there's a sign that says, hey, Taylor, you want to rent a unit? Go to this website or call this number. So you can go online, start to finish, rent a unit, 
get the instructions texted or emailed to you right there in the parking lot, get through our security system and go move in. If you don't want to do that online, we have a call center. And the, the beautiful thing is our call center isn't a glorified answering service that takes a message and then sends it to me, <laughs> making me do a bunch of work that I don't want to do. Sure. They actually are embedded in the back end of our software so they can move people in, move people out. They're dedicated just to the same customers that use their software. And then the third critical piece, which you touched on uh, directly, is physical tasks on site. What I, I call the person who fills that role, my boots on the ground. And we, we don't have time to go into all the details, but suffice it to say, it's far less work than you could ever imagine. Once a property, once the systems are in place, let's say a month or two after we take ownership and we've cleaned out what we need to clean out and we get things kind of overhauled, if you will, and put the systems in place, that boots on the ground is going to spend anywhere from two to four hours a week doing work. And there are routine tasks, mowing the lawn, spraying for weeds, Sometimes do that. Sometimes we'll have an outside vendor do that. It just depends, right? Um, same thing with pest control. Uh, the boots on the ground, primarily what they're doing is to be your eyes and ears. And I always encourage them and I overpay them to take ownership of the place. So these are $10 an hour tasks and I don't pay them hourly, but I pay them the equivalent of three times that. And that's so that they don't need me to ask them to pick up garbage once a week. They just pick up garbage once a week, right? Um, but their primary role, the most important thing to allow me to remotely manage, I don't own any properties in my home state anymore. Um, and so what they do is they do a lock audit on a regular basis to ensure that our physical inventory matches the inventory we have online. So that in the instance that I described to start this little monologue, when someone pulls up and rents a unit, when they get there, the unit is actually ready for them. It's, there's a similar model in the mobile home, home park space. I don't want to get too far away from this boots on the ground idea, but in the mobile home park space, say if you buy a smaller park, what they'll say is, you know, find somebody in the park that you can trust that's going to be, you know, your guy in the park or whatever. And to me... You know, and obviously maybe I'm wrong here, right? But to me, this boots on the ground, you know, use somebody who's working two, four hours a week. It just sounds, it sounds like a management headache, right? Because when we buy a hundred, 200 unit apartment complex, right? Our property managers are professionals, right? This is their career. They might own the company. They might manage, you know, three, 4,000 units. Yeah. They're going to, they, they're savvy, right? They know they're going to check all the boxes. They're going to do everything they need to do to be legally compliant. We're going to keep an eye on them, all that great stuff. Whereas, I don't know, it just sounds to me like somebody who's, you know, it's, it's three to four times the $10 an hour it's valued at, that's still 30 bucks, right? That's uh, thir well, 30 bucks an hour, but for two hours a week, that's 60 bucks. We're not talking a huge amount of money here for somebody. What's stopping them from just not doing the tasks once yeah. a week? I, I, maybe I'm too uh, cynical or pessimistic no, 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 or whatever, no. but I think it's a great, it's, yeah. it's a great question and a very good point and a common kind of fear, if you will, and one that I've shared. And there's a couple things at play. One, just comparing it to the mobile home park stuff or multifamily, you have to remember the tasks these boots on the ground are doing are not really mission critical, right? They're not doing credit checks or taking rental applications, kind of uh, feeling out the character of a potential tenant, whether this is someone who, um, you know, is, is 
fits with the, the community, right? Can they be trusted? Or is this someone who's going to become a scam artist and they're going to leave garbage out? Or are they going to follow the rules of the rental agreement, right? Those sorts of things. Um, it, that's not what they're doing. So the reason I say that is because you only need, I'm going to call it the C plus player for your boots on the ground. If they're C plus, they're good enough to get the job done. And in my experience, they're good enough enough for me to want to be involved in that investment. If they're not a C plus, I got to replace them with somebody who is. Now, if you can find the A version to fill that role, which I will tell you more times than not, I'm finding B plus to A people eventually. Sometimes it takes one or two to your point. That's part of the headache that you know you're signing up for over the first six months. Because as good a uh, judge of character as I think that I am, I'm not right? You don't know. People can uh, talk a good game. And then a month later, to your point, they're not doing the tasks as they should be. So it does take time. But if you find that a person, then it becomes almost too good to be true. You're like, and I'll, I'll say this, I've been to my Florida facility once in the last two years. And this is a facility that went from 500,000 to 1.5 million over that time frame. Nice. I've had three boots on the ground and the first two were both great. They just moved away each time. And so then I had to bring somebody else in. But it's it's far easier to find that person than you would guess. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Now, what are the angles I'd like to uh, cover you know, with folks like yourself uh, for the listener out there is just ways in which people can get involved. I've talked about uh, the fact that I have a passive investment in self-storage. Actually, I'm wearing a polo shirt that the company sent me right now. It's one of oh, my nice. favorite polos, right? Uh, but what are other ways that investors can get involved? They can go out and buy a self-storage facility on their own. What are other options that kind of run that active to passive gamut? Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, I mean, no disrespect at all. And I know you won't take it this way. I, I am not a fan of the word passive simply because I think guys like you and me, if we're mature enough, we understand that passive doesn't mean you know, if the money falls out of the sky, <laughs> right? I, right? I, <laughs> yeah. I work with a lot of uh, folks who are newer into the investment world. So I like to use the term residual because that paints the picture that you're doing work up front and then getting paid more than you deserve for a long time thereafter. Good point. Um, the risk of using passive is they think that, again, it's just going to fall out of the sky. But um, I, I would argue no matter how passive your syndication that you're a part of, is it passive? Because unless you threw a dart at the wall and picked Spartan to be your team, you did some work to vet them, to vet their investment. So there was your activity and now you're making residual returns. Anyways, it's totally semantics, but it's one that I, I subscribe to. Um, as far as how folks can get involved, there's everything from, hey, I'm, I'm a lone wolf and I'm doing it all myself. Um, I'm going to roll up my sleeves and put in my own money and roll up my sleeves and get sweat equity too. And I'm just going to make it happen. Um, for folks that are, have no interest in that, there are options to limit their involvement to maybe similar to what you did to vetting operators or principals and the deals that they present and then joining in either through um, a formal syndication or maybe through a joint venture or a partnership, that sort of thing. All the way down to, we have people who invest in storage um, and I know this probably isn't the market that uh, your audience is made up of, but um, we have guys who 
do the work to find the deals, but have no interest in running them long-term. So they'll wholesale them. Now, sometimes they'll wholesale them for a fee, just take their money and run. Other times they'll become a long-term passive investor by wholesaling for a a small equity stake, right? And oftentimes our exit strategies will involve that too. I I recently, um, recently, it's 2018 now, sold a property where I retained 10% of the property. So I sold it to somebody else. They paid me for it. And I, rather than requiring them to pay me the full purchase price, I left a couple hundred thousand dollars in the deal and kept 10% of the property for myself. So I get quarterly distributions right now. And that's probably as close to, to passive as you can, you, I could be. Again, the caveat is I spent seven years buying and owning that property before I ended up on the, on the passive side of it all. Yeah, I think the residual point is you know, it's well taken, right? And I'm not doing the work on the syndication that I invested in, right? But I did get to know those guys right. for a few years, right, before I invested with them. And yeah. I think that relationship building process is is good for passive investors too, um, in syndications. But certainly, I, I take your point with uh, with residuals versus passive, and you know, we're not getting uh, money for nothing, as uh, what was that the police would say? But uh, right. yeah, right. right. Great. Well, right now we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. Okay, Mike, I've got three questions. I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. First one, what is the best investment you ever made? And this caveat may not apply to you other than in your education. Yeah. Oh man. I got it. I can answer this two ways. The first one is my my first storage facility I ever bought. I bought it for $330,000. Like I said, it was losing two grand a month when I bought it. Nine months later, it was 97% full. We refinanced, expanded, did that a couple of times. Ultimately, I sold that property for in 2018, as I just mentioned, for 1.8 million. Nice. Um, and the reason it's the best one ever is actually just because it was the first one. And it could have done half that well or not nearly as well as it did financially. And I think I would still look on it just as fondly because I remember my friends were saying, so Dr. Wagner, they were poking fun at me because I left my doctoral degree at the physical therapy store, right? Uh, (laughs) What do you think? Did you you make the right call? And I remember being able to look them dead in the eyes and say, I know I did because I've never been more broke and I've never been happier. Um, And so the sense of freedom that came with kind of forging my own path is what calls me to label that first one, the best one. Nice. Nice. I love it. We had the best investment. Now we go to the worst investment. I, we might know the answer to this already. I don't know. But what is the worst investment you ever made? Yeah, no, I'm tempted to say it was that $250,000 education, <laughs> but I, I, I don't think that would actually be the truth. I think, you know, I'm not a guy to have regrets. And I think that uh, that was something I needed to go through. And, and I learned a lot in college that I still apply just because I don't use that particular degree. Uh, there was there was a lot going on there. The, the worst investment, man, I I don't know. And maybe that's, I'm not trying to sound naive. It's just, I tend to look at every, everything, even 2020, for example, uh, all I see is the silver lining, right? I, I purposely don't look at all of the things that made it the worst year for so many people, because I, I, I believe if you think it was the worst year, it probably was. And if you think it was the worst investment, it probably was. If you look at, I believe that everything is a perfect opportunity to XYZ. So whatever my worst investment is, it might've been the worst from one perspective, 
from another, it was the perfect opportunity to learn, grow, develop, whatever. So I skirted your question, but that's what I'm sticking with. That's fair. I, I think that's, that's true. I mean, I've lost, um, I'll give you an example. I lost a lot of money. Well, not a lot of money. I lost a lot of percentage on options at one point, but it was uh, on the order of a couple hundred bucks, right? I mean, I can, I can deal with that loss, but the upside of that is I learned that what am I doing in options? I don't understand. I, I like why I just back out of it. Right. And that was a yeah. while ago now, and, you know, from a financial standpoint, yeah, it was a loss, but from a learning standpoint, it was, it, those potential gains. So focus on the game, right? So yeah, I, I certainly take your point. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson that you've learned in business and investing? Hands down, beyond a shadow of a doubt, it is that as great an opportunity as investing offers all of us, it is not without its potential traps. And I think the biggest trap is that unless each of us defines success for ourselves we will unintentionally default into chasing, chasing the world's definition of success. Oftentimes that's a bigger house, a bigger car and a bigger boat. And I have nothing against any of those things as long as they're conscious choices. And we, we are aware of the non-financial costs of our financial decisions. Uh, I see far too many investors who walk down a path toward freedom and, uh, at some point down the road, they look back and go, wait a minute, I'm working harder than I ever did. I'm making 10 times as much money as I ever did, but my life doesn't feel better. I'm more stressed. I'm more tired. This isn't what I had in mind when I got started. And so I think the best thing people can do is make sure that their first success when they hit that home run and have that extra money is that they steward it in a way that allows them to have a better life as, and I guess I'll end by saying the the take-home message is make sure that what you're doing as you seek a better life is in alignment with the idea that more is not necessarily better. Better is necessarily better. And so I want for everybody, I want for them to chase their better, not society's version of better, which is really just more. Nice. I like it. Consume. No, make up your own <laughs> mind about what, what better is. It's quite ironic though, because I make my living storing things that people bought too much of. <laughs> right? Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I totally understand. I mean, I, I don't necessarily consider myself a minimalist, but I live my life in a pretty minimalist way. I mean, you mentioned, um, I don't remember if this is before we start recording or not, but you mentioned about not getting something until you've wanted it for six weeks when you were a kid, your mother, you know, wouldn't get it for you until you wanted it six weeks later. I mean, I'm in my thirties and I do that to myself with just stuff because most of the time, this, this stuff isn't going to improve your life at all. And you're not going to want it in six weeks anyway. And I, I think that's a, just a generally a good way to, um, to kind of look at things and look at things and consuming and value is like, do, is this really going to change my life at all? Or is it just a, an impulse? Right. Is it a short-term dopamine hit or is it true satisfaction and fulfillment on the other side of whatever this thing is? Absolutely. Well, Mike, thank you for joining us today and teaching us about the storage rebellion. If folks want to get in touch with you, if they want to learn more, all that good stuff, where can they find you? 
Yeah, we uh, are highly active. Myself and and the rest of the Storage Rebels are uh, active and can be found at storagerebels.com. It's a free community. I, I like to call it the the bigger pockets for storage geeks. Um, and uh, it's growing super fast and uh, lots of great feedback. And, and I've built it as kind of a passion project to, to fill the void that I felt when I got started and I was all alone in the storage industry. It's a great place to forge relationships. Um, money finds deals and deals find money and people get together and, and help each other, support each other. It's a very, very much a go-giver style uh, community where people are, are not, they don't subscribe to a scarcity mindset. They're, they're willing to share and give pointers and share golden nuggets and all that good stuff. Nice. I love it. I think um, the market is ripe for other alternatives to bigger pockets. Not that I don't like bigger pockets. I'm on there almost every day, right? But maybe more niche or and or like more advanced levels of bigger pockets. Um, I think there's there's quite a market for it. So I'm, I'm glad you have that going. Well, thank you for joining us today. Once again, uh, to everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts very much appreciated and it helps other people learn about the show we are now live streaming on youtube so if you'd like to join the conversation live look up passive wealth strategies on youtube hit the subscribe and notification bell and all that stuff that the talking heads on youtube's like to say and uh, we will see you on the next recording i hope you have a great rest of your day and a great week and we will talk to you on the next one bye-bye